Welcome to season three of the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker and I'll be your host. Are you interested in what the Bible really means or wondering how it's relevant to life today? If so, this podcast is for you. In this season, we are going back to where it all begins, the book of Genesis. No matter what your age or your background or your experience is with the Bible, I believe you can find something fresh and meaningful every time you study it. Hi, my name's Ariana. The Bible is for everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Ariana. All right, friends, let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm glad you've tuned in today. It's been a bit since I've published a podcast. We've had some major changes in our personal lives as we've followed a really strong calling to be foster parents. So we currently have three little people living in our home in addition to the four of us Parkers. And so the needs in this house have increased exponentially, as you can imagine. And as a result, I just have not had the time to devote to creating and publishing podcasts that I really want to have. Plus, this past holiday season, although it's been a few months, was really challenging. We had to manage our own holiday plans, plus the blend of our traditions and the traditions the children brought with them from their experiences, various expectations, and of course, celebrating seven people for Christmas, and one of them also has a Christmas Day birthday. <laughs> Winter brought a busy schedule for me. I'm an adjunct at a local state college, and I've got a new endeavor to co-write a textbook for a course I teach. So as you can see, it's been a bit busy, but I haven't forgotten about podcasting and teaching, especially teaching God's word. It's still such a passion of mine. So I really want to continue to balance the needs of my home with the ministry of podcasting. Podcasting encourages my own spiritual growth. It's an investment in my relationship with the Lord, and I'm hopeful it makes a difference in the lives of my listeners. So with these things in mind, I'm pressing forward into this spring with a goal of continuing to post podcasts while balancing the needs of my family. Now, we last left off with the conclusion of Noah's story. God had destroyed the earth with a flood, but had preserved Noah's family and made a covenant with him, promising to never destroy the earth with a flood again. And he gave Noah new instructions for living on the newly altered planet. Now, some time passes and Noah gets drunk. Ham, his son, responds to his father's sinful, drunk state with a mockery, which brings a curse upon him and his descendants. Now, chapter 9 ends with the totality of Noah's years on earth, which was 950 years. Now, the next chapter is what's referred to as the Table of Nations. And this is the kind of chapter that would be easy to skip. It's a lot of difficult-to-pronounce names and a genealogical tree sprawling through several generations from Noah. But there are some important things to pull from this chapter. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to read most of these verses today because, honestly, the names are just too much. But let's take a look at the first five verses and just summarize, shall we? In these verses, we learn about Japheth's descendants. Japheth was one of Noah's sons. And we learn that his descendants settle in the coastlands. And there's even a note about how the families were separated by their own language and nations. Now, in the next chapter, we're going to read about the Tower of Babel, which is the story of God splitting up humanity into different languages and nations. 
So this chapter contains a little bit of foreshadowing of some things we haven't learned about yet if we're reading the Bible chapter by chapter. Now, these families, named in Genesis 10, span hundreds of years. And archaeologists tell us that no other ancient record contains the detail and accuracy of this particular chapter. As I've read this chapter over and over, a few thoughts have come to mind. First, I wonder how many other sons were in these families, but not named here. And of course, I wonder about the women. I wonder about their experiences creating cities and nations and establishing cultures. I wonder if they ever imagined we would read their names hundreds of years later. Now, genealogies aren't always fun to read, and it can certainly be hard to pronounce the various names, but these are people's lives. They, like us, had hopes and dreams. They had triumphs and struggles. They had family drama, and they had love stories. And sometimes I get tunnel vision about my life. I think that what I see, perceive, and think is the summation of the universe. And of course, I know that it isn't, but it feels like the whole world is really just my world. And so reading a genealogy helps me remember that my experience is just one tiny speck in God's economy. Now, this could feel overwhelming or discouraging, but I like to use that perspective to remind me that God is so much bigger than what I can even begin to imagine. So if you review those first five verses of chapter 10, you learn a little bit about Japheth's line. Not much, but enough to realize they spread out near the coastlands and over time built their own nations. In verse 6, the author begins to detail Ham's line. Ham's genealogy goes until verse 20. There are far more sons and grandsons named here. Plus, there's this little mini description about a guy named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod's a really interesting character. There's quite a bit of divergence in thoughts among scholars about the Hebrew words used to describe Nimrod. There's a phrase in verse 9 that says, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, in English, before the Lord doesn't have a whole lot of ways to be understood. But in Hebrew, this phrase could mean by the grace of, or it could mean against. A few translators have taken the more positive approach of this phrase, but most take the view that this phrase is negative, that Nimrod is against the Lord and rebellious in nature. One commentator I've read quoted Jerome, who said Nimrod was the first despot to rule people. The name Nimrod in Hebrew is also a verb meaning we shall rebel. So it's entirely possible that Nimrod was a really talented individual who was rebellious toward God. Now, this section of verses tells us that he was a mighty hunter and that he had a huge territory and even built some cities, including Nineveh. Nineveh is the famous city that God sent Job to, which Job tried desperately to avoid because it was so incredibly evil. Nimrod's territory also included Assyria, which is one of Israel's most violent and cruel enemies. Now, verse 20 ends with a summary statement that these were Ham's descendants and that they separated into their own nations and languages. And the last son of Noah to have his line described is Shem. This is the line Jesus will come from. If you've listened to some of my other podcasts on Genesis, you know that one of the themes in Genesis is the promised seed. In Genesis 3, God promises Eve that he will bring a seed from her line who will crush the head of the serpent. We've looked in every story for the seed, but no perfect seed has emerged. 
In this section of verses, Shem's descendants are outlined. And there is an interesting note about two brothers, Peleg and Joktan. Peleg's descendants don't get much attention here, but actually this is the line that Jesus will ultimately come from. And it's the genealogical line our next major character, Abram, will descend from. The author notes that Peleg was named so because his days on the earth were divided. Most commentators think that this relates to the divisions caused by Babel. Chapter 11 is going to detail what happened at Babel. And then right after that, the author will give us another genealogy leading up to Abram. It's in chapter 12 that we learn that Peleg has a son named Ru. Ru is a son named Sarug. Sarug has a son named Nahor. Nahor has a son named Terah. And Terah is Abram's father. And the story of Abram will take us through the next major storyline of Genesis. But I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves because nestled between this account of Noah's descendants and the line from Shem to Abram is the story of the Tower of Babel. So let's turn our attention to Babel. Chapter 11 of Genesis begins with verse 1, which says, The whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. So the author is reorientating us to a point sometime before the narrative in chapter 10 when the people of all the earth spoke the same language. The author has given us a genealogy that goes beyond the event in this last chapter, but then backs up to tell the story because this is so important to the rest of the Israelite story. Now verses 2 through 5 give us a little bit more background for the events of Babel. Here they are. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. This population of people moved eastward. And if you remember, when Adam and Eve left the garden, God had put an angel to guard the east side of the garden. Cain had also moved east to the land of Nod. So we have this eastward movement that's repeating itself in a cycle here. We also have another bit of a repetition. Let's notice some of the word choices that have been used. Come, let us make. Did that sound familiar? It's the same phrase God used in Genesis 1 when he says, let us make man in our own image. God made humans and gave them a purpose. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and fill the earth. Then he said to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over all the earth and multiply on it. So it's very clear that God's command and intention for mankind is to multiply and fill the earth. So when we read in these verses that the people are building a city and a tower to make a name for themselves and avoid being scattered, it's clear that their intentions are in rebellion to God's purpose. And did you notice when I read these words that special attention was given to the type of bricks that were made? The people made bricks. And in my English Bible, in parenthesis, the writer adds that they used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. So why would that be an important note? Let's think about the idea of gathering stones and securing them with mortar. 
And both of those items are raw materials. And these people probably had plenty of that in this region. And that likely made decent structures. But compare that with the idea of sun-dried bricks and tar. The bricks and the tar would be far more enduring. The people were serious about their project and intended for their city and this tower to last a very long time. They went the extra effort to sun-dry bricks and to secure tar from asphalt pits. So the intention here is to build a very strong, very permanent city and a tower in the center. They reasoned that this construction would keep them together and would make a name for themselves. The tower's purpose wasn't to literally reach heaven, it was symbolic. The people wanted the tower to be seen from a distance, as if it were as high as the heavens, and to symbolize that the people who created it were as powerful as God's. Do you remember what God said to Cain when he was caught in his lie about his brother? Genesis 4-6 says, If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And we've seen this cycle play out, haven't we? After the story of Cain, we learn that sin crouched the door of everyone on earth, and everyone opened the door except Noah and his family. And God destroyed the whole earth, except for Noah and his family. But even Noah opened the door to sin, getting drunk and exposing himself. His son also gave in to sin, mocking his father's drunken state and bringing shame and a curse on his family. And now we read about this population of people who are blatantly disobeying God's command to fill the earth by trying to establish their own name through a permanent city and grandiose tower. All of this as a result of sin. And of course, there is the promise of a seed who will redeem. But every time we think the seed has come, that person proves they are not the seed by opening that door and letting sin in. It's not that the city making or the tower building is in itself sinful. There's nothing inherently wrong with building a community or building structures to support that community. The problem is the intentions behind the actions. The rebellious attitude, the prideful goals, the disregard for God's word. This is characteristic of humans today, isn't it? Not much has changed in terms of our hearts or our attitudes or the sin that crouches. We read next about the Lord's response. And I love the way the author writes this. These stories were passed on orally. Repetition of words, phrases, and the use of imagery help people remember the stories accurately and pass them on. These next few verses are from Genesis 11, 5-7. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building. And the Lord said, If as one people all sharing a common language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. Now don't read this thinking God had to literally come down from heaven in order to check out the city and tower. The imagery here is that the people were building up, so God came down. In literature, we call this type of thing anthropomorphic imagery. 
It's when we take something that's non-human and give it human characteristics. It's like saying the sun smiled down on us or the wind was biting. The sun can't really smile, the wind can't really bite, but we understand the implication because of our human experience. God didn't really come down, but the author is orientating us to God's attention and actions on this human activity. God says, come, let us go down. And that phrase is a mirror of the one above in which the people said, come, let us make oven-fired bricks and come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. God's response is to confuse their language. And of course, this is brilliant. He's promised to never destroy the earth again, but he knows that in order to stop the potential obliteration of anyone left on the earth who obeys him, something's going to have to be done. So with the confusion of languages, the people have no choice but to scatter and form communities with those they can communicate with. As in other projects I've done, I want to highlight a few word plays that are evident in Hebrew, but not so obvious in English. Now, remember, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I, I just read a lot. I'm kind of a nerd. So I'm not qualified to speak on matters of Hebrew. So some of these tidbits come from Bray and Hobbin's book, Genesis 1-11, through a new old translation for readers, scholars, and translators. And their translation of verse 9 is this. Hence, her name is called Babylon, for there the Lord scrambled the tongue of all the earth and made it babble. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of all the earth. So, a few word plays here. First, the word for brick and the word for scramble have the same first two consonants, just in reverse order. If we try to make this intention similar in English, we might do something like, let us go down and unbrick their tongue. So, you can see that word play in English, and that's kind of the same idea that's happening in the Hebrew. The idea is that God can, and sometimes will, reverse what humans do in their rebellion. Second, the Hebrew word we translate to Babel, B-A-B-E-L, is really Babylon everywhere else in the Bible. The Hebrew word for mix up is spelled B-A-L-A-L, Balal. So changing the middle letters to B-A-B-E-L, Babel, triggers this meaning for a Hebrew speaker. It's the Tower of Mix-Up. Babylon does grow to become a great city, and eventually the language by Akkadian speakers will ascribe a meaning to the word Babylon, and it will mean gate of the gods. But when this story was told out loud, orally, to Hebrew speakers, the connection between Mix-Up and Babylon was very clear to them. I love what Bray and Hobbins say in their comments, so I'll just read this as a direct quote from them. What in Hebrew is only a single phrase, balal safa, is translated scrambled the tongue and made it babble. The double translation allows the reader to see the repetition of scramble while not losing the central pun. In Babylon, one might say they babble on. So they're bringing to light some of this wordplay that's happening in Hebrew that we would kind of miss in our English translation. So yes, we know that the Lord scrambled the languages of people here at this point in the story, and that people did stop building the city and that tower. But we also know that Babylon became a great nation. In fact, this was already told in chapter 10. 
Verse 9 and 10 said, he, meaning Nimrod, was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord, his kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Babylon will be an enemy of God's people all throughout the Old Testament. Babylon is also symbolized in various enemies of Israel throughout history and foretold as an enemy of God's people in Revelation. And isn't that fitting? The story of the start of the city and this tower is centered in rebellion to God's direction and purpose. The rebellion carries on to this day, even if it's a small rebellion of the heart, a prideful attempt to make a name for ourselves, a disregard for God's command. It's sin. Sin is crouching at our door. We have to master it or it will destroy us. We're going to keep coming back to this lesson and this theme all throughout Genesis as we watch the Israelite story unfold. I'm so excited to continue the study of Genesis with you, and I hope you'll be back for more. My goal is to be as consistent as possible in the midst of my primary calling of parenting my own children and the bonus children that God has entrusted to us for this season. So if you think of us, our family, your prayers will be much appreciated. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoy what you heard. Don't forget to leave a review and connect with us on Instagram. The Bible is for everyone.